Hi, this is Dr. Sean Handorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert, and this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable, and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Hey everyone, Dr. Hondorp here, and I'm really excited to bring the episode today, which includes another conversation with Anique Besso. So this is my first time ever, second time guest, uh, I guess we'll say it like that. And um, I had to bring Anique back because she, her episode actually aired um, episode 16, and it we talked about health at every size and some of the myths about that, and it actually remains one of our most downloaded episodes to date. So you can go back and check that out in the show notes. There's a link at the top of the episode if you scroll in your podcast, down in your podcast, but also if you go to drshawnhondorp.com forward slash 16, that episode will be there. And Anique, as a reminder, is a registered dietitian. She's the founder of SOMA, a private practice that specializes in the treatment of eating disorders and sports nutrition. And she's located in Montreal, Canada, but she serves clients in the U.S. virtually. And she has developed an expertise in the treatment of eating disorders in a variety of settings. She and I met uh, because we work at a group practice um, located, Mind Body Health, located in Washington, D.C. area. And... Anik and I uh, covered a variety of topics today. I actually ended up splitting the episode into two. Anik and I are a little bit chatty and we really like these topics. So we talked about a lot of different things. So it's going to be a part two podcast episode. This week's episode, we're going to talk about some of Anik's experiences with her pregnancy. At the time of this recording, she's actually pregnant and due with her first kiddo in a couple weeks after we recorded. Um, And so we talked about both of our experiences actually with pregnancy and her more recent and my previous experience with miscarriage and how this can relate to size privilege and how it relates to kind of creating trust and appreciation with our body. So um, just a heads up on that conversation. And then we'll talk today about what are eating disorders and what do they look like and how they can differ from disordered eating and how you might be able to tell if you have one or both um, of those concerns. And we'll also talk about what you can do or what you should do if you think you have an eating disorder or disordered eating. And then next week in part two, we'll be covering how to create a health-promoting environment for parents, partners, and kids, and why um, some ideas about why it's simpler than we often make it and some tactical, tangible tips you can take with you. And then finally, we talk about Anique's uh, expertise in sports nutrition, and we talk about relative energy deficiency in sports, which was really interesting to learn about. It's something that I I did not know anything about, and it can happen to intense endurance athletes, but also to people exercising um, less. And, but also if they're dieting at the same time, we talk a little bit about what that can look like. And again, what can be done about that? So, so excited to have Anique here again. Let's dive in and get started. Do you ever worry that you're wasting your life? I definitely did. In fact, I wrote that in my journal many years ago when I was in the middle of the diet binge roller coaster ride. I woke up every day thinking about food, my body, and what I would eat that day to quote-unquote be healthy. The notebooks I had filled with calories and points could fill up a spare bedroom. Social events and vacations immediately prompted the thought, they will notice I've gained weight, or I need to lose weight by then. 
Deep down, I knew I wasn't living life the way I wanted to, but I didn't know how to pull myself out of it. If this is you, I want you to imagine what it would feel like to feel empowered in your body and proud of your choices on a consistent basis. I promise you this is possible and it isn't too late. You see, dieting steals our motivation. It makes us ineffective and lose faith in ourselves. It keeps us spinning our wheels in a system that was never built to work. If you're ready to take that first step to motivating yourself with what matters to you, download my Cultivate Powerful Motivation Guide, which is quite beautifully designed if I say so myself, and walk through the simple three steps to cultivate motivation that works for you in 15 minutes or less. You'll get a simple formula to write one sentence at the end that you can use to motivate yourself on a daily basis. You can write this sentence on your bathroom mirror, put it on the background of your phone, or just read it and repeat it in your mind consistently. Look, I know how much it hurts to live a life worrying that you're missing out, not stepping into the person that you were truly meant to be. You can listen to the podcast all day, but taking that first step, putting pen to paper or typing on your phone is required for true lasting change. It's time to start living, my friend. So it's 100% free. What are you waiting for? Grab your free guide today at drhondorp.com forward slash motivate. That's D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash motivate. And before we dive into today's episode, just a reminder that this podcast and corresponding blog are for informational and educational purposes only and should not ever be construed as any form of professional advice. If you are struggling in any of these areas or trying to figure out how this applies to your specific situation, always consult a professional for guidance. All right, let's dive in. All right, so welcome back, Anique Besso. Anique is my very first uh, second time guest. And so your episode that came out, um, it was episode 16. I know that I think it might've come out in possibly March or so. So early on in my podcast journey, we talked about health at every size. It remains one of our more popular episodes. So we had to bring Anique back because you have so many different areas of expertise to share. So we're going to be delving into a lot of fun topics today, eating disorders, disordered eating, kind of knowing the differences as well as sports nutrition, which is a uh, strong interest area of yours as well. Um, so, so excited to have you back, Anique. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really excited for this conversation. Me too. So we're going to start with just kind of an update on where you are today, because you have some kind of a lot has happened since we last <laughs> talked. So um, you are now pregnant and remind me when you're due. I'm due like in a month, December 19th. Yeah. 19th. Yeah. So I'd love to just hear how you're doing, how you're feeling and how this whole pregnancy journey has been for you. Yeah, it's been, um, it's been a very interesting journey, I guess. Like I, I will say, um, it's funny. One of my clients, um, actually reflected this to me like the other day saying, oh, you have like such a privilege that you can be connected with your body and kind of think of this as, um, a nice experience. And Mm -hmm. I, I will say that in that sense, I have been very lucky. Um, I actually like miscarried before this pregnancy. So there was a lot of grief obviously with that, but I, I remember thinking like, wow, like how bodies can just like naturally know, and they protect us, even though sometimes it might lead to a lot of pain. Mm -hmm. So I think because of that experience, especially like going into this pregnancy, of course, first trimester, a lot of anxiety, um, a lot of like compulsive doubt. Um, but since then really just trying to be grateful and just adapt and listen to my body. Um, I will say on the like exercise and running front, um, I know we talked that I was like a runner last time on the podcast. So, you know, I've had like varied friends kind of having different experiences with running. Um, So I've just been like, I'm going to try to run and see how I feel. Um, And what's been really interesting is just really having to adapt to your body. There are some days I'm running a little bit still, but there are some days where just how the baby's sitting, it's like, we're not going anywhere. And it just Uh turns into 
a little walk and you come home. So really, I think approaching it more with like flexibility and trying to move for my mental health versus like having a plan that I'm going to follow because then if not, you're tired, you're sore. Um, And that was really something I wanted to be mindful of. Yeah. So it sounds like overall really been, it sounds like been grateful for the ability to kind of maintain that flexibility throughout even. And the fact that, yeah, your body's allowing you to run uh, this close to your due date is great. That's I think pretty rare, but I could be wrong. I don't know. I certainly, I wasn't, but I don't know that I like really tried that much because it just just did not feel too good to do so. (laughs) But yeah, I think different people say it just, like just doesn't feel good anymore. So I'm waiting for that day. Every time I meet my friend, I'm like, I think this time is like our last time. So let's uh-huh. soak it all in. And uh, yeah, so far it's been, it hasn't been the last time yet. Yeah. Well, and going back to the miscarriage, I know you and I talked briefly before we hit record about that. And I'm so sorry for your loss, having gone through that experiences as well. I know how painful that can be and how, but it sounds like even to that, you were able to sort of bring almost like a body respecting attitude towards it. Would that, does that feel accurate? Yeah, I was, I was like very, um, I, I understood the risks and like the chances. So Mm -hmm. I think for me, I'm kind of maybe one of those annoying women that thinks it's like so beautiful and natural, like how the body (laughs) creates a life. So I kind of viewed miscarriage as like, you know, this time it just wasn't meant to be, but I will say like, you know, there's like the rational when you're dealing with it initially, but like the grief was very, very difficult. Um, And I think a lot of like the fear of the unknown afterwards, like now being pregnant, it's easy to like sit back and be like, oh yeah, you know, what a painful experience, but it's okay. But like between the like two pregnancies, Mm -hmm. um, my husband can definitely like attest to this. I was very like anxious and like, you know, like researching. And I remember seeing my doctor and he had just said like, you just need to calm down. Like there's, there's not, this is all very natural. There's nothing wrong, but I think our minds can kind of just hook on things and really want to find that control. Yeah. It's, um, it's interesting that we're having this discussion today too, because I'm actually working on, sometimes I work on blog posts because I usually write a blog post when I do my solo episodes and I kind of like go do the podcast after and they're kind of connected. So I have this like pretty detailed blog post where I'm starting to research some of the kind of the data, having gone through a miscarriage, having a strong interest in women's health about just like with most things with, with a weight, um, normative focus. We, there's a lot of blame associated with women's bodies and a whole bunch of things. And this is one of them where if you kind of do a Google search on like miscarriage and weight or the word obesity, there's some blaming type language that will pop up pretty readily. And so it's, it's always like an association, right. And, and so looking at really the research and what do we know about causes, I've started to kind of do a deep delve into the research there and it's really interesting, but very emotionally heavy, which is why the episode has not come out yet because (laughs) it's it's kind of intense and, uh, and it's really like so much of the research is like, we, we can't randomly assign. So we can't a thousand percent know like yes or no, what causes what, but most miscarriages are caused by like, you know, well, the genetic abnormalities, that's like very, very common. That's just like anything. That's the most likely thing. But we also know that I think it sounds like you and I kind of had a gift of like not blaming our bodies too much, but can you imagine like the immense additional pain on top of like the grief that already is so intense is definitely the most painful grief experience I've dealt with. And uh, so it's been sort of an area of interest of mine to help hopefully empower women to understand the research in a way that helps them to feel, feel good in their bodies and not compound the pain. Exactly. It has made me really mindful of my privilege. I will say being pregnant, like I, you know, when I miscarried, I think a lot of people try to find reasons. And for me, it was like how busy I am and like my stress. (laughs) Um, But there was never any like weight stigma in kind of um, what people were saying. And I see that in pregnancy, there is so much related to like 
weight and how you like hold your baby and like, oh, great job. You're still able to run or you're not able to run. And it's all about this like performance. Um, Mm -hmm. And so I imagine knowing my clients like experiences, like how much grief and like how it can make the experience so terrible in a way to like be pregnant. And also like after giving birth, because all eyes are on you and people like just allow themselves to like say whatever they want about your body. Right. Yes. The unsolicited comments are just ridiculous and they are <laughs> ever present. I know. I don't know if they've been a li- I don't have you, do you feel a little protected from that? Cause you're working from home. Maybe not. No. Cause you, you're working in the office now too. Yeah. Um, no, I don't think so. I, I mean, my surroundings, like I'm very lucky. I mean, there have been experiences. I'm very like sensitive, to um, sure. but I think, you know, because of we're still kind of in a pandemic, I'm sure there's been some protective factors too, just because you're not seeing like 20 million people. I just am remembering like I, uh, that was, I, uh, I would, I saw a lot of people in the office during both my pregnancies. And like, there's always that like long walk from like the waiting area to the office where like, there's not a whole lot else to talk about. And like, that was often a point of discussion. And it's like, (laughs) okay. Like not in any really mean way per se, but just comments about like how far along and comparing your size with how far along you are. And it's like, all right. I don't, don't love this, but okay. Here we go. Yes. But yeah, I was going to say too, to your point, I don't know if you've had clients that like, there's also prior to getting pregnant or even the discussion of pregnancy, this like fear associated with, with weight and getting like healthy, which gets associated with weight. Um, people sort of fear the pregnancy outcomes, even before it happens. I've seen some of that, like sort of, I don't want to, or being told by a doctor, you need to lose weight to have a healthy pregnancy. I think that's another thing that I've encountered a lot. And it's like, we need, I really hope we can empower women with accurate information in that area more. So over time is something I, that also came up as I was listening to what you're saying. Oh yeah, absolutely. I've definitely had a lot of women with that experience and this like fear that like their weight leads to infertility and, um, and, you know, I, I feel really interested in like women's health and like hormones, um, especially like, as we'll talk about with like sports nutrition and a lot of times this like obsession and like anxiety around like controlling food, needing to lose weight um, actually does kind of throw off the hormones and like the menstrual cycle and can kind of almost have like the opposite effect of what people are hoping for. So mm-hmm. it's a very comp, I think it's really complicated. And I unfortunately think that a lot of doctors are obviously trying to like do well, mm-hmm. um, but they kind of increase that stress and anxiety and end up like causing or contributing in some ways to hormonal imbalances and then like fertility problems down the road. Right. Yeah. We need to think about all the different angles and like, it's a, can be a nuanced conversation, but to figure out, yeah, how can we actually support health without doing harm is, uh, sounds like an interest area of both of us. So yeah. (laughs) Well, yeah. Any other, um, anecdotes you want to share about your pregnancy journey, any like special foods that you're liking or not liking any other changes that you've noticed with relationship with food and body? I will say, um, the relationship with food has been interesting just because I'm, I'm not that interested in food. Um, So, and I'm someone who loves food. I love eating. Um, I love cooking. Yeah. So that's been very hard for me. And it's, it's allowed me to also understand my clients from this standpoint where it's like, okay, I need to eat because I'm told I have to eat and I need to like fuel my body and whatever. But like, I literally have no interest in eating like mm. there it's not, I'm not like excited to do it. Okay. Um, and that's never happened to me. Yeah. So I hope it comes back. <laughs> yeah. I, I bet it will. Although it's, that is interesting. Like it's just so many people have different experiences and it's so, it is weird when your relationship with food shifts and like how we respond to it. And there can be different like pros and cons, I guess, to not, not that that's necessarily pro for you. I'm just saying like, yeah, as it shifts, you're like, wait a second. Um, yeah. but sometimes for me, it's been like more so as I've gotten away from dieting, I've, found less interest in food. Like I'm definitely not a foodie. I like food. Um, 
and I've, I've, I think it also might just be the influence of my husband who's very much like, I'll eat whatever, like does not care. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. it's probably just social influence if nothing else. But, um, but yeah, it's like, yeah, you do kind of miss like the really excitement that can come with like really enjoying food. I could see how that'd be sort of a loss for, so yeah, no, no major like cravings that are like really strong and like it's kind of the opposite. <laughs> no. for you, like, yeah. Yeah. It's been really odd. Yeah. So just an example of like having to go with it versus try to force yourself to feel a certain way. Yeah, exactly. And I think how the experience is just so different for everyone. Yes. Um, It's very cool to hear about different women's pregnancies. Yes. Yep. Definitely. Well, very cool. Thank you for sharing. And uh, we can't wait. You're having a boy, right? A boy. Yes. That's what I thought. Can't (laughs) wait to hear more in a couple of weeks. (laughs) And then of course, birth experience is a whole nother conversation. <laughs> Tell me about yes. bringing back for round three for that one. <laughs> so, well, wonderful. Well, we will um, dive into, we kind of have like a little bit of a hodgepodge of different questions that we're going to chat about today. I'm excited to dive in. So one of the first ones that I just wanted to kind of check in on, I feel like we talked about this briefly last time in terms of the health at every size framework, but what do you love best about kind of the work that you do and, and shifting towards like a really weight inclusive model. Um, how has mm. that kind of helped or helped shift the work that you do? Cause like, I know you and I know how much you love the work that you do, but what do you love yeah. most about it? I really love, um, and I hope I'm not repeating myself, um, the other podcast, but I think <laughs> in the work that I do, um, I, I think as dietitians in our training, we don't have the opportunity to understand like the complex relationship that people have with food in their bodies. And I think in my job, at least, and kind of the way I approach clients and even, you know, my colleagues is kind of really trying to see people and create those like moments of vulnerability, authenticity, and connection, and really trying to move away from shame. So what I've seen is that there's so much shaming and, you know, value placed judgments on food and bodies and exercise. And so I think journeying with the people I work with to kind of, I think understanding myself better, but also their stories and seeing how it can really enrich somebody's life because we have to eat every day, like mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. And it can be a huge source of stress, a huge source of pain, a huge source of doubt. So when we can kind of like sit with people in all of that, um, and see how objectively the eating habits can change, or people feel more confident in their bodies. It's like, I just think it's like a really nice, like gift. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I think, that's, um, that's something that's kind of since we've talked last, like the more I interview people and the more I think about like where change really occurs, it's like creating that, that safe, that safe space where they feel seen and heard for who they are today is how change occurs. And I think that's one of the reasons why sometimes, at least in the social media space, the um, anti-diet message gets that's so much played up is like, it's not your fault and you're not broken because we need that first. And then I think that gets confused as we've talked about last time, like, that it's not anti-health, right? And it's not not promoting health promoting behaviors, but because everyone is so individual, what specific health promoting behavior is usually like that after the safe space is created. And I think that's that's at least my my opinion about why this work is like so valuable, but also why on social media it gets missed because people get confused. <laughs> they get confused about like, what does this mean? And how does this help me? And the next step when... So anyway, that's just my random side note, but yes, yeah, I agree with that. And that it's just, it's, it's complicated. It's hard. Um, a conversation I was having with some of my colleagues the other day is just that like, we want to like fix it, but sometimes in like fixing it and being like, oh no, no, you shouldn't like worry about your weight. Like you should just like eat what you want. It's like, you miss kind of the whole human experience around it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think social media, you just can't capture each person's like individual experience. So Mm -hmm. it can become very 
polarized as we talked about last time. <laughs> yeah. Still, yeah, it's, well, I just did my interview with uh, Dr. Alexis Connison. She said, it's not the land of nuance. Uh, and it's, uh, <laughs> it's just, you have like a few seconds to capture or not capture. And if you don't connect and it's like, oh, how on earth are you going to, you're only going to connect with like one specific per, like type of person and that's okay. But like, yeah, to create um, a message that's somehow going to meet every single person where they're at is like impossible. And impossible. so I think it kind of sets people up for failure, even though it can be a very great tool in, in many ways, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, so we're going to talk for a little bit about eating disorders and their different presentations. So just starting with, cause I think this is really important. And I actually think this is an area that I need to learn more about too. So I'm really excited. So what are eating disorders and what are some of the different presentations that people want to keep an eye out for? Mm. And I guess, um, Sean, when you talk about the presentations, like I probably don't want to like bore people with like the diagnostic criteria, right? Like more kind of what you would see somebody doing yes. in terms of behaviors. Exactly. I would agree okay. with that. Yeah. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, <laughs> they don't have to diagnose. So I, I hate diagnoses and I have to diagnose. So which is more what it I would know. look like. <laughs> yeah. Luckily we don't have to diagnose. We can be like, you know, I don't diagnose, but I'm kind of, <laughs> it's kind <expecting>. of nice. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I guess eating disorders, like just like as a general umbrella are a mental illness. So they're diagnosed by uh, mental health professionals. Um, and there, there are a lot of different presentations. I would say that, you know, there, there's a lot of disordered eating that can occur like with diet culture, you know, um, people with that are like chronic dieters, I would say are disordered eaters, but like, there's a difference between like a disordered eater and like a difficult relationship with food and eating disorders that are like really, really like a mental illness where the behaviors actually like interfere with like daily living and also like sometimes like physical health and mental health. Um, so I just wanted to like kind of clarify that nuance, but in terms of eating disorders, I guess like the ones that we would recognize um, in terms of like the Hollywood depiction of an eating disorder is um, the restrictive type of eating disorder. So anorexia nervosa, where, you know, there's an extreme preoccupation with body shape and weight, a fear of um, gaining weight, um, usually like a restricted intake. And that can be accompanied by what we call like compensatory behaviors. So let's say if somebody ends up eating something that they didn't want to, they could compensate um, usually through like purging, laxative, diuretic use, or um, through exercise. Mm -hmm. I think one thing that I will, I feel is like always so important when I'm talking about eating disorders is that we always think about like anorexia nervosa as like a very like emaciated appearance. Um, and while like that's what's been projected in the media, it's actually very untrue. Like I work with a lot of clients who, have anorexia who appear to be in like normal bodies, but as you dig, they're actually like significantly under their natural body weights. They've lost a significant amount of weight um, and they show a lot of signs of malnutrition. Mm -hmm. So I think that's a really big stigma I'll say. And especially with people in larger bodies, because oftentimes when they see medical professionals, they're almost like encouraged to engage in these behaviors mm -hmm. when like somebody in a smaller body would be like, Oh my goodness, like this is anorexia. We need to treat this. This is really a problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. And along those lines, not again, that the diagnosis isn't the criteria aren't as important. Although the good thing is from DSM four to five, our more recent diagnostic and statistical manual, what mental health professionals used to diagnose, there was some positive shifts into more inclusive uh, anorexia can be diagnosed now. The language is no longer needed, uh, or sorry, the, the language that they used to describe the criteria no longer requires someone to be at a like BMI of less than 18.5, I believe. And so that's, yeah. I, I was looking at that recently for a talk and I was like, well, that's great, obviously. And um, the language is also less blaming. It used to be more blaming such as like refusal to maintain a weight. And now it doesn't use that language. Like it, it 
was more choice-based language before and I'm like yeah. oh gosh so yeah <laughs> um so that's I guess um anorexia we will like we'll also see eating disorders that present more um in terms of like uh binge eating and compulsive eating um so you kind of have binge eating disorder that falls into that and also bulimia nervosa mm-hmm. um so Binge eating disorder, um, I think is actually one of the most common ones in the States. Um, mm-hmm. Like in terms of the stats, I would say probably in the world, but I have the stats for the United States. Mm-hmm. Um, and usually what happens is oftentimes what I see is that there actually is kind of a, a restrictive aspect to the eating throughout the day. Um, And, you know, some people are like, no, no, I'm not restricting. I'm not losing weight, but restriction can be like physical restriction where you're like not eating an adequate amount of calories and your body can adapt to that and still not lose weight. So it's not just because your body's not losing weight that you're not restricting, Mm -hmm. but there's also the cognitive restriction, which is more that people are like watching everything they eat and not allowing themselves to eat for like what I call forbidden foods. So foods that they would deem unhealthy or bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and oftentimes that creates kind of like a perfect storm for binging. Cause you kind of like step over your line. Um, and the binging episode is actually described as like a perceived loss of control. So I, the way I like try to assess for it and describe it to clients is almost like, do you feel like you're watching yourself eat? And like, in your mind, you're like, you have to stop, you have to stop. Um, but you're just like not capable of stopping. And then all of a sudden there's something that like snaps you out of it. Um, I think binging in terms of like the function that it serves can be very complex, probably as you know, but there's obvious, there can be like an emotion regulation aspect to it or more like that people are just very hungry um, Mm -hmm. and they're trying to just meet their energy needs. So I guess I would encourage people to like further explore like, what function the binging serves Mm -hmm. and what distinguishes, I guess, binge eating disorder from bulimia nervosa is just that bulimia will be accompanied by like compensatory behaviors following the binge. So as mentioned with the other diagnosis, it's like kind of engaging in like exercise or um, self-induced vomiting or using like diuretics or laxatives um, just Mm -hmm. to kind of make up for, well, it leads to like reducing the guilt Um, and the shame associated with the binge. I will say people with binge eating disorder who don't necessarily engage in those specific behaviors often do feel like a lot of shame and guilt and -hmm. will tell themselves that like tomorrow I'll restrict and kind of make up for it. Um, But usually it's just that like physiologically the body does get hungry and it just kind of leads to another binge. Right, right. Yes. And, and that, I mean, I think I don't know what your experience is, is, but obviously there are some additional like medical complications associated with things like purging and laxatives use, but there are a lot of similarities across like even let's say bulimia and binge eating, because like you said, there's, even though it's not specific compensatory behavior, there is this like effort to be good. And that may mean going long periods of time without eating the next day. It also might just be getting on a like a good eating plan the next day. And it can be associated. It's like kind of a similar process in many ways psychologically. But, um, so yeah, for me, I see a lot of, I'm just curious your experience, but I see a lot of similarities with probably the main exception of like very extreme restrictive anorexia being a bit categorically different. Although like it's, I would say many of it is on a continuum by no means saying that all of these disorders can't be very extreme very, very dangerous, but there's a lot of similarities across eating disorder categories in my experience with the, um, over-evaluation of self-worth based on weight and shape and, uh, and the oh, amount of shame and guilt that goes there. So is that your experience yeah. too? Yeah. And I've always been like, so happy that we don't have to diagnose because I feel like people from week to week can like move between the diagnoses and it's very yeah. hard to like distinguish. And I think a lot of people actually take a lot of pride in their diagnosis. Um, maybe pride is the wrong word, but there's like stigma associated with the different diagnoses. So, you know, it's, it is very common that as somebody has experienced anorexia, that there will be episodes of binging. 
um, mm-hmm. along the way. That's just the the body's like natural response. Yep. But there's just so much shaming around that, that it's like, no, no, but I'm somebody who restricts and it's like, yeah, but you can be all of those things. Um, yes. and it's not to invalidate anyone, but it's just exactly the diagnosis is kind of irrelevant in my opinion. Yeah. I know I've, I've never really liked diagnoses. I, and I always, I've sort of questioned, is it because I, like, why is that? Am I accidentally minimizing a problem by not having a more frank discussion? Or is it just that I, I'm mostly, I'm trying to reduce shame and stigma, but it's always this like balance of you want to be giving accurate feedback, but, but yeah, the categories to me, I'm like, eh, I, I agree. They, they don't matter as much as the, the process of what's going on and, and having a good picture of it but you can get a little bit of diagnostic information with like the frequency and but yeah exactly I will say one of the diagnoses that I think in in like maybe the mental health world I don't know if you can speak to this is like avoidant restrictive food intake disorder which is um a diagnosis that um I would say an eating disorder that is very different than kind of the anorexia bulimia binge eating um and so like, I guess the acronym for that is ARFID. Um, and ARFID um, is really, I think we're, we're kind of becoming more and more comfortable treating it. But I would say that it's one where there isn't that much research around like the, the treatment around it. Um, the approach that we use is either uh, family-based treatment for ARFID or um, the CBT ARFID. And so usually there isn't necessarily like an overvaluation of body shape or weight. There's no preoccupation in that, but it's somebody who is unable to maintain an appropriate body weight due to avoidance of um, certain foods or food groups. And that can be for different reasons. Sometimes there's like a hypersensibility to like textures and taste. And so there's like an avoidance of things that have in air quotes, like weird textures. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's an association with like a past traumatic experience where there was maybe like vomiting or choking. And so the kind of variety of foods gets really, really small because the person is kind of trying to avoid that experience again. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other one is really just like a lack of interest in food, like zero interest in eating. Um, And so they're just not able to like meet their energy needs. Um, So typically this population, it's interesting because like the safe foods are very different than like the foods we would assume to be safe with like, I'm going to say like the anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder. So they actually really do tend towards like more processed, high carb, high fat foods and would avoid things like fruits and vegetables, for example. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I, I don't have as much experience, but it's more been like hearing about colleagues, but yes, from what I know, it, there can be that categorical sort of difference, even though it gets um, put into the feeding eating disorder category. Yeah. 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 Interesting. <laughs> and so how can we distinguish eating disorders from disordered eating? Cause I think this is really important because like you said, it's, there's a big continuum of disordered eating that wouldn't meet full criteria for an eating disorder. Yeah. And I I was thinking about that. Um, I'm actually curious to hear your thoughts too, but the way I, um, the way I distinguish it is that usually with eating disorders, because it is a mental illness, it's that because of the fusion with the eating disorder thoughts, there's actually like an ability to override like natural like physiological functioning. Um, So somebody, let's say, who is a restrictive dieter who will kind of always engage in these efforts to restrict their intake may end up like binging, may stop the diet three months later and kind of like regain all the weight, for example. And they will still feel a lot of guilt, anxiety and engage in the diet again. But it's just that the body's like natural mechanism of like survival will kick in and kind of like override that urge to control the eating. Whereas with an eating disorder, it's more that like the mind is really overriding these like natural responses. I don't know what you think of that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think of it a little bit differently, but I I think um, my 
experience like professionally, although I do have, I have, my background is in research um, and undergrad with uh, eating disorders, genetic and biology of eating Mm. disorders. Although that was research only, I didn't do any clinical work. They did twin studies and like really cool studies of ovarian hormones and binge eating. And um, from what I learned there, particularly from my uh, research mentor there, they had done some research that at least looked at like um, prevalence of like true, truly restrictive anorexia really stayed consistent across cultures, suggesting there was a very strong biological genetic component to that disorder. That was somewhat different. We saw bulimia and binge eating wasn't actually an, even a disorder back then when, when she wrote this hmm. paper, because this was um, about 2000 or so that she came out with it. And then I was in college a little bit later than that. Those, there was more fluctuations in those disorders based on like more westernized culture, more exposure to cultural norms. So to me, that suggested that there's a bit more influence of the environment and diet culture than there is. There does seem to be a like sort of phenotype, if you will, of anorexia that's very consistent across cultures that aren't as weight focused or diet culture focused. So it's kind of interesting. It suggests this like very strong biological components, but yeah, I, I always thought of it as kind of on a continuum really of like, you know, we have the people on one side of the continuum, maybe really restrictive anorexia is on that one side. And then we have like anorexia with binging, purging, bulimia, binge eating, I would say are similar, but again, there's different severities there. And then we have what ends up diagnostically being eating disorder, not otherwise specified. So those are people that, you know, don't meet criteria. They aren't binge eating often enough, but they still have a lot of, for diagnoses, we have to have impairment and or distress. So we have to have some impairment in your life and or distress about it. So certainly there's Mm. a lot of people that would fall into um, this eating disorder, not otherwise specified. Maybe they're binge eating once a month, um, but they're really distressed about it. And they think about eating and being good on their diet the rest of the month. And it's really impacting their ability to be present with their family, or they're always looking at pictures of themselves and getting really down on themselves. And so it's like on a day-to-day basis, they're thinking about it quite a lot. That would still be a pretty significant eating disorder, but symptom wise, it doesn't quite meet criteria. So I tend to have a continuum based approach to most things. It's just kind of the way yeah. my brain works, but of course in psychology, we do have to diagnose, but again, I'm, I'm less concerned about the diagnosis and more concerned about the individual's experience. Cause I would say in my, like in my work, I get to see people probably that are on a little bit less of the diagnostically severe range, but still very mm. distressed by it. So Absolutely. I think what I would add to, to like that spectrum. Um, and I, I actually would agree with that definition. I think it's, that's super helpful the way you stated it. Um, I think with disordered eating, um, or even just like eating disorders, depending on the presentation, what's interesting, um, depending on how fused the person is with the illness is kind of the ability to like separate and make changes that like a lot of times, like, you know, you could see people um, with disordered eating. I see this a lot in athletes with like, who have a preoccupation with their bodies and like show signs of disordered eating with like the nutrition education and kind of like, you know, these goals and the plan, they're like, okay. And then it's like, yeah, I was kind of stressed, but like, I just did it. And like, I'm fine. It's cool. Whereas like somebody who's like, I guess more on like the severe end would want to do it, but there's so much that comes up for them that it kind of like gets in the way of falling through on the change. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's like, yeah, either you could sometimes we'll use the term like ego syntonic, meaning like the behaviors are so fused with your identity versus ego dystonic, which is like, you know, I'm doing these, um, these behaviors, let's say like maybe depression could be ego dystonic. Like I feel these symptoms of depression. It makes me disengage. And I don't like that. Like, I really want to be more engaged in my life. Whereas sometimes the eating disorder behaviors can lead to sometimes a smaller body size, which can fuse with like positive associations of identity. Right. Or a lot of people will describe restriction as when I restrict, I'm good. Right. I'm, I'm, I feel sense of pride and control. And of course, like we want you to feel pride in yourself, but we want to do it in a different way. And it can be harder to unpack for sure. 
Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Um, and, and what, uh, well, I do want to, well, yeah, let's see. I was going to say one more question about eating disorders as we're on this topic. What should people do if they think they have an eating disorder? Um, they should definitely talk about it. Mm -hmm. um, I would say, I would say the first thing and, um, you know, a lot of people with disordered eating or eating disorders tend to invalidate their experience and like normalize it. So I think talking about it as the first step could be really helpful because maybe you could realize that like your experience is very different than somebody who's a normal eater that like, maybe it's not normal to be body checking five times a day or like to feel out of control with food on a daily basis, to feel really obsessive around food, to have anxiety. But sometimes that can be normalized in our lives. And we think that, oh no, maybe everyone just feels this way. Mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of times what I hear is like people just try to like read books and help themselves. While I think books can be super helpful for like education purposes, I think like we just talked about, um, eating disorders are really complex and it can kick up so much stuff. So I would highly, highly recommend like working with somebody who is actually an eating disorder specialist. Um, and, you know, interview the professionals that you want to work with. It's like, it's okay to kind of check it out and see if you feel safe. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think just like looking around yourself and trying to get the support to change because like we talked about, an eating disorder can really um, take over your identity and sense of self. So it can be really hard to fight against the disorder on your own. So sometimes getting that support can be really, really helpful. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And I will say too that um, that something that might be relevant to the podcast listeners is the idea of like, like reading intuitive eating um, is a great book. And I, I found it very helpful. But if you are really struggling with the eating disorder, that's probably not going to be enough, not even close, right. And so particularly if you're not like even this idea of like, how do I intuitively eat when I'm restricting so much or when I'm skipping meals, like, I think by the time I found intuitive eating, I had like, done some work and was eating I actually never skipped meals like my my eating disorder never became super restrictive but like it's I still wasn't eating disorder. it still was definitely meeting criteria mm -hmm. for binge eating but um but by the time yeah intuitive eating was helpful for me but I I always like caution people against hearing that and being like I'm just gonna read this by all means it's a great book to read but um not not only just because it's self-help but it's like it the, the first step is really like regular eating. And a lot of times we need support with that. And so figured it was yeah. worth throwing that in there too, but <laughs> all right. So I hope you enjoyed that first half of our conversation with Anik and I, uh, some main takeaways from today's conversation. First of all, we, we talk again at the beginning about the really the privilege of being able to be connected with your body and respect and appreciate it. And, you know, if you can do that before you, if you're planning on having kids and you uh, want that in your life, doing this work beforehand is really going to serve you well because there's a lot of barriers, obviously, to creating that trust and appreciation for your body but you deserve that. And there's, you know, many ways it doesn't come naturally. Um, but it's, something that's often hurting women in ways that we're not even aware of. So doing this work can be very challenging, but it can also be very rewarding and it can allow you kind of the privilege of being able to kind of be in awe of what your body can do. Uh, you know, pregnancy just being one of the things. So we talk about how trying to conceive and pregnancy are incredibly vulnerable times. In my experience, I think one of the most vulnerable that women can go through and body respect and appreciation can greatly enhance this experience. And again, every woman deserves this, but there's a lot of barriers. So finding communities particularly that help you to move towards this way of viewing your body is essential. And then we talk about how eating disorders can range in diagnosis, but there's actually a lot of similarities across eating disorder categories. So, you know, absolutely defer to expertise from a mental health professional with areas, ideally with some weight inclusive training, 
but there are often more similarities than differences, particularly as we relate it to shame and guilt that's felt, over-evaluation of self-worth. Again, if we look at the root of what's going on, there are a lot of similarities, although it can present differently. So make sure that you don't minimize your experience especially if you're not technically meeting a certain set of criteria and know that in terms of diagnoses, the criteria has expanded um, and isn't so stringent as it used to be and that uh, serious eating disorders can happen in any body size. That is a fact that more people are aware of, but it's still a work in progress. And then eating disorders and disordered eating can be thought of on a continuum. Um, a good question to ask is, Perhaps how much are my thoughts about eating and my body impacting my life and or causing distress? So um, if they're causing distress and they're causing a lot of, you know, even pulling you away from being present with the people you care about, that is valid and that is something that you can work on with a trained professional. And then again, make sure you Stick with us and come back next week where we talk about creating health-promoting environments for kiddos and adults and partners and with some tips to share how it's not as complicated as we often make it. And also we'll talk about sports nutrition and things of that nature that I learned a lot about. So can't wait to see you then. Have a good week. If you're anything like me, you may at times really feel like there's so much pain in the world that it's pretty overwhelming. And even though I do my best to avoid the news, it's hard to avoid feeling helpless at times that you can't do anything to make positive change. Well, I'm here to tell you that there's one positive change that I've made in terms of where I buy my books, and I'd invite you to do the same. Bookshop is a website that supports local bookstores near you, as well as affiliates that work with them. So if you buy through the Bookshop link, you're going to be supporting local bookstores near you in the U.S. and Canada, and you're going to be supporting my blog and podcast. It's kind of like a tip jar. Did you know that if nothing slows their momentum, Amazon will have about 80% of the book market by the end of 2025? Look, I have Amazon Prime. I love the convenience, but this is a super cool way that you can do something positive with where you buy your books and support some really positive causes. Make sure you check it out. You can find all of my favorite books about health and wellness, but also about topics like courage, vulnerability, and even some of my favorite fiction and kids books for the times when you just need some fun, downtime, or some meaningful stories. My recent favorite is related to improving the quality of our lives and the way we use technology, and really doing so from a value-based place. No pressure. It's not going to tell you that technology is bad. It's just going to help you to evaluate for you where the pros outweigh the cons and where they don't. So if you believe in supporting local, controlling the things that you can, please consider buying your books through Bookshop and through the Psychology of Wellness link. You can find that in the show notes, or you can go to drshawnhondorp.com. That's D-R-S-H-A-W-N-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash bookshop. Thank you for tuning in today. Your time is valuable and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard, and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.